Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, but unusually with a common theme, socialist women who won election to political office as first-time candidates. First, we'll hear from Margaret Corvett, who's been on this show several times before discussing British politics generally, and who was elected in May to the city council in Plymouth, England. And then after that, Julia Salazar, who just won the Democratic primary for the New York State Senate in North Brooklyn with the backing of the Democratic Socialists of America. Since she has no Republican opposition, that means she's the senator-elect, though I suppose that's not literally true yet. Margaret Corbett is no stranger to Behind the News. She's been on three times before, mostly to discuss British politics, though she also did talk some about her earlier career as a professional dominatrix. That previous engagement proved no obstacle to her winning election in May to the city council in Plymouth, England, on the Labour Party ticket. The electoral scene in Britain is rather different from here. For one, Labour is headed by a serious left-winger, Jeremy Corbyn. You can't say the same for our Democrats. But still, Margaret Corbyn's election is part of a left upsurge in that country and ours. Here's Margaret Corbyn to talk about her election, her new job, and the state of British politics. You've been a political activist for a long time, but how did you decide to run for office? I decided to run for office because Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party nationally. And for the first time, I actually saw a politician who represented my socialist uh, values at the uh, highest points of power. So I decided that standing for office would not just be great in its own right, but also would support the message that he's trying to get across. Over here, uh, after the Sanders campaign, we saw a whole bunch of mostly younger people, and a lot of them women and and, uh, not older white guys, entering politics uh, and running for office. Do you see something uh, similar going on uh, with the Corbyn influence in, in Britain? I am, actually. Uh, There are lots of women, and not just younger women, also middle-aged women, who are just getting excited by the democratization of politics within the Labour Party, and they're just standing up and getting involved in their local parties. They're meeting city councillors, and they're just getting excited and standing for office themselves. And the Labour Party is rather different from our Democratic Party in that it is actually a membership organization uh, with some form of internal democracy. It's not just a a branding and money distribution operation like ours, right? Yeah, the Labour Party has always been a member-led organization since it was formed at the uh, turn of the 20th century. So uh, members uh, are organized into constituency parties And they set policy for the Labour Party at our national conference, which is happening at the end of this week. It's starting. Uh, uh, Corbyn, rather, um, is uh, uh, just the target of relentless attacks now, particularly around anti-Semitism. How's that going? And uh, is it really having an effect? There's been a whole lot of conflict and crisis around the question of anti-Semitism going on. Uh, over the summer. Um, And it is really important because there are a very small number of people who support Jeremy Corbyn who are posting like outright anti-Semitic content on the internet. Corbyn has really kind of risen above some of this uh, conflict and has uh, condemned anti-Semitism very strongly. Um, And he's actually adopted the IHRA uh, definition of anti-Semitism with some small amendments. So we're hoping that, um, you know, that dialogue, which has been really important, can just sort of move forward now and we can focus on some of the broader issues as well that are affecting the country, including Brexit. 
Okay, now turning to your local politics, Plymouth, small city. Uh, tell us about Plymouth, where it is, and what, what, what its demographics and you know structure and, and such are like. Plymouth is the 14th largest city in the UK. It's a medium-sized city in the southwest of the UK, um, and it's a historically very strong naval city. So you know we have a big dockyard, the biggest in Europe, and we've got a huge sort of marine economy as well. So with all kinds of uh, scientific stuff, fishing stuff, pleasure boats. So what we're really trying to do is strengthen the economy of Plymouth. So there's jobs for people who are leaving school and university, and also so there's housing for everybody. So we're dealing with a big, uh, you know, increase in homelessness because of austerity. So Plymouth Labor, which just got into power in May, is working really hard to build homes for people so we can get folks off the waiting list for social housing. And has uh, Plymouth suffered uh, the kind of you know, impoverishment and deindustrialization that some uh, regional cities have in England? We have uh, definitely dealt with a little bit of that. Uh, you know, there are jobs that have gone away because uh, industry is winding down in some areas. Uh, Brexit has also scared jobs away nationally. There are big factories and stuff that are cutting jobs are going to three days a week uh, because they're not sure how Brexit is going to affect the economy. So, you know, we've had that sort of deindustrialization, but, you know, right now we're actually doing our best to combat that, you know, trying to improve our cultural offer. So we're building a new a contemporary art museum and that's really cool. And in trying to improve all of our creative sectors, our digital sector, and everything like that is is really important. So we're doing what we can on a local level, but what we really need is a labor government that uh, can do things like renationalize industries like energy, the trains, infrastructure, transport, stuff like that, and uh, create really, really good jobs for people here. My impression is that Britain is a much more uh, centralized uh, governance structure than the U.S. The central government really has enormous powers, much more so than our federal government does, and uh, the local authorities are not as powerful as our states and some cities are. Is that correct? That is correct. Basically, what's been going on in the U.K. is there's been a pot of money that's given to local authorities every year, and under... The Tories uh, and the coalition Lib Dem Tory government before that, that pot of money has been decreasing. Meanwhile, local authorities are tasked with uh, a lot of really important responsibilities like adult social care. That's like, you know, taking care of our older people who, who need domiciliary care or, or nursing care. And also, you know, children's social care. That's kids who are in foster care or looked after. Those are huge budgets. And so we are tasked with the necessity of meeting the needs of those people and also trying to do everything else that a city has to do, whether it's clean the streets, maintain the parks, uh, do wellness activities or anything like that. So we've been trying to do more with less and local authorities are really on the coal face of austerity, which is why, you know, in the local government association, we've been fighting that so hard and trying to support things like, you know, what Jeremy Corbyn's calling for, which is a national care service where you get social care free at the point of use, like we do with the NHS. So we really need changes like that to make sure that cities can deliver everything they need to deliver. Do you have any taxing power at all locally, or is it all dependent on the central government? 
We do have a taxing power. We have council tax uh, and there's business rates and there's uh, certain limits about how much we can raise council tax. So if you raise council tax more than 6%, you have to have a referendum. And pretty much every time that happens, it uh, will get rejected or refused. So we really are scrambling for money. um, And we're always fighting to get more of our budgets basically put into our own hands. Because when we have our council tax, a lot of that has to go right out again uh, to statutory things that we have to do. And the city council you're serving on, uh, how large is it and what is the party composition? There's 56 members of the city council and we have labor and conservatives. Right now, labor is in charge. We've got, I believe, five more members than the Tories have. Historically, Plymouth is a marginal city. It flip-flops back and forth between the two parties. Uh, But right now, we're really excited because we in Plymouth Labor are one of the few cities in the May elections to have taken the council directly off the Tories. So we were kind of a high point of the spring 2018 campaign. And we've done 100 manifesto pledges that we put out to voters, and we're busy filling those as quickly as we can, really trying to get the basics right and deliver excellent services on the ground for local residents. And what did you campaign on? I'm a counselor for a ward called Drake, which is a ward that has got a lot of year-round residents, but also a lot of students. It's a really diverse ward. So one of the main things I did was encourage students to register to vote and to let them know that even though they're from out of town, they can totally vote in our local elections. And, you know, talking about things that students need, we want students to stay in Plymouth after they graduate. And with that, talking about good jobs for them, good infrastructure, good cultural activities, you know, what we're going to do as a city. But also I was talking about stuff like potholes, like bin collections, like weeds, like parking. I mean, all of these quality of life issues that look really small if you're talking about grand geopolitics all the time are actually really important. They are like the front line of quality of life. Like if somebody can't park, that's social isolation. They can't get in with their shopping. They can't get in to visit their friends. Their carer can't get in if they can't find somewhere to park. You know, anything like that actually turns into a really important issue. So you've got to talk about both. Now, here in uh, New York and other large cities in the U.S., um, you know, gentrification, rising cost of housing, uh, these are important issues. Uh, do you have anything like that in Plymouth? That is a problem all over the U.K. If you look at a city like London, it's not nearly so bad uh, in Plymouth as it is somewhere like that. But there are plenty of people who use housing as an asset rather than as, you know, a dwelling where people can live. So we do have some rogue landlords, absentee rogue landlords, uh, and we're doing our best to crack down on them and to make sure they treat their tenants okay. Um, In terms of rules and regulations about who can own a home and increasing house prices like that. A lot of that has to be done in London at the uh, parliamentary level, but we can do what we can. I'm speaking with Margaret Corvett, a Labour member of the City Council in Plymouth, England. Now, you have an unorthodox history for a politician, no real experience in electoral politics, and also you have had a career as a rather prominent and open sex worker. Um, Did that matter at all? Uh, Did it appeal to or alienate voters one way or the other? We were prepared for both when we were doing the campaign. We were prepared for, in in my campaign team, a lot of sort of negative questions, slurs and stuff like that. 
And we were actually really gratified that that didn't come up at all. I think that maybe it might have helped people remember me, but in a parliamentary system, the individual candidate is not as important as the party, as the local manifesto, as the national manifesto. So I wasn't talking so much about myself. I was talking about labor and labor values. And I think that's what won it for us in my ward and across the city. And the job, what's it like? I mean, is it a full-time job? Uh, What are your colleagues like? Um, What's it like to go to work as a city councilor in Plymouth? Uh, The job uh, is not a full-time job uh, for sort of a backbench counselor. It can be anywhere from about 15 to 25 hours a week, depending on the meetings you go to. You've got monthly meetings of various committees, like I'm on a scrutiny committee for health and adult social care. That's really important. I'm on the planning committee. I've got site visits for that. And I'm doing ward work all the time, people phoning me up saying, you know, there's been a bunch of rubbish dumped in their back lane or there's antisocial behavior, or they need help accessing benefits, anything like that. I'm helping residents. Uh, I conduct surgeries. And I also engage with residents on social media. So people will message me on Facebook uh, or Twitter and ask for my help. So there's a lot of stuff, but it's very different on a day-to-day basis. I was impressed with the city council is, I think, roughly the size of the New York City Council. Uh, and, you know, Plymouth is a fraction of, of the size of New York City. So the, and the British Parliament got, I think, larger than the, the U.S. Congress. Um, so the, the relation of constituent to representative is, sounds rather different there than here. It is. There's a lot less difference. Uh, excuse me. There's a lot less distance between a city councillor in the UK and the average resident than there would be perhaps in a country like the United States. So I think that's really great because I can give people a lot of individual attention and, and I can take the time to listen to them. And it's not, you know, a big staff. I mean, we have the officials in the city councillor who help all of us. But, you know, I'm basically the person navigating people's casework personally, myself and individually, um, as opposed to in an MP's office where there will often be staff helping them. And I really appreciate uh, that hands-on experience. Do you have staff? What's it like? Well, we uh, as individual city councilors don't have staff that we hire ourselves. There's a team uh, called Democratic Support that helps all of us so we can email them with our casework, and they'll make sure it gets to the right department. But they help everybody, no matter what party they're in. It really is just sort of a very personal and direct process for us. And each individual counselor has their own way of working. Uh, Some people like to do surgeries every week. Some people do a surgery, which is a drop-in, once a month. And some people do everything kind of on the phone or or face-to-face. So it's we get a lot of leeway uh, on how we want to do stuff. Now, my impression is that in legislative bodies, you know, uh, personal relationships become very important, uh, that uh, um, the relation of the, the, the members to one another um, can take on a life of their own. Now, what is the, the, the social life of the council members like? It's really actually very cool. In Plymouth Labor, uh, a lot of us have political differences with each other, like some support Jeremy Corbyn and some don't. 
But when it comes to doing our work as a labor group on the city council, we all really pull together. Um, and I've made some really great friendships, particularly with some of the women uh, councillors in the labor group. So you can phone people up and go, how do I do this? Or what department does this fall under? Um, or just call somebody up and have a, a bit of a rant about a, an experience you've had. There's a lot of emotional and practical support. And uh, we all canvas, we all knock doors for each other. And in a big group, we go uh, from ward to ward and do our, our canvassing in a mass canvas group on a Saturday. And we'll just rotate around uh, whose ward we're all visiting. Um, on Saturday, there'll be a mass canvas in my ward. So there'll be counselors from all over the city and lots of ordinary activists knocking doors. And that's basically where we get to know each other is on the doorstep on the, on the campaign trail, knocking doors and, and getting casework and identifying our voters. And now turning it to the national level again, what are the prospects now for a Corbyn prime ministership? I actually think that the prospects for getting Jeremy into number 10 Downing Street are quite good. And that's largely because of Brexit. Uh, Theresa May and the conservatives are doing an utterly pants job negotiating Brexit. Um, and there's a lot of worries about a no deal Brexit. So people are worried about massive economic ruptures. Like, you know, we're not going to be able to ship our fish that we catch in Plymouth to market. We're not going to be able to import a lot of the really basic products that are used for ordinary life here. And people are kind of freaking out about that. So it, Jeremy Corbyn has not been drawn on Brexit, but a lot of people think that a labor government would either negotiate a better Brexit deal for the United Kingdom or might even have uh, a people's vote uh, and give the country another chance to assess the final deal about Brexit. So I think the more that the national labor leadership can speak about Brexit and speak about how our vision is better, the better chance we have to win power and to get Jeremy into number 10. However, it's not up to us when a general election happens. That's largely up to the conservatives and their ally, the DUP, the small Northern Irish Ulster uh, Unionist Party that is their coalition partner. So if there's any kind of crash out disagreement there, we could have a snap election and we could be knocking on doors for Jeremy Corbyn again. Yeah. Is that coalition with the DUP holding together? The coalition uh, with the DUP has had a lot of ructions in it, domestic issues within Northern Ireland, and particularly the question of under Brexit, is there going to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is something that most people in Northern Ireland really, really don't want because it could start the troubles again, you know, the violent conflict that was going on in Northern Ireland. So. I think that as that sort of throws into the uh, Brexit negotiations, that is something that could really cause the coalition to fall apart. How much buyer's remorse does there seem to be about Brexit? Uh, did people vote symbolically and now kind of regret when they see the consequences are? Or you know, would it win today again? That is a very uh, good question. And it's very geographically determined. Um, like the north of the city in Plymouth, for instance, voted super hard to leave, like over 60% to leave the European Union. And I'm guessing, you know, off the top of my head, that if there was a second vote, they'd probably vote 
leave again. But in lots of other parts of the country, including many of the very urbanized parts of the country, uh, there is huge buyer's remorse over Brexit. And there's lots of polling going on that says if there were a second referendum, then people would vote differently. Um, there's basically two proposals to have a people's say, a people's vote on the Brexit deal. One of them is to have a second referendum. The other uh, is to have a general election where you get the Tories and Labour putting forward their proposals for a Brexit. And then, you know, the country can vote for that party. Um, and I think that there is a decent chance, I can't guarantee it, but there's a decent chance that there would be a different outcome. And I'd really like that to have a chance. What were your thoughts on Brexit? I know you had I had you on uh, to talk about it, but uh, now, um, what what's what does it look like to you? I personally oppose Brexit. Um, there are some people on the left who want Brexit, and you know they call it Lexit because under European rules, it it might be less easy to do some of the stuff that Jeremy Corbyn wants to do, like nationalizing uh, various industries. Myself, I still want to remain in the European Union um, for a couple of reasons, one of which is because the the large narrative heft of the Brexit movement has been from the right and led largely by xenophobia. And I think that Brexit might cause a dramatic increase in racism and xenophobia. And also, I think that we do have a chance within the European Union to have a fair and just society to support workers' rights, to support human rights, and to do things that Germany wants to do, like nationalize our industries. I mean, if we look at France and Germany, the um, energy industries and stuff like that are nationalized there. So why shouldn't we have the same right? Okay. And finally, what advice would you give uh, to someone like you uh, who hadn't been in electoral politics before and is contemplating entering? What What advice would you give them about running? I think the biggest advice I would give them would be to reach out to other people who have experience being a candidate, uh, particularly to women, to reach out to other women. You can sort of read about it. You can follow people's races. But until you actually stand for office, you don't realize what it's like. It's incredibly full on. It's incredibly intense. I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it so far. But it doesn't mean I haven't been stressed out. And when you're at that point where you're ready to tear your hair out, you want somebody else who's been there to talk to. So it's it's always that question of solidarity and of reaching out to to groups of people who are fighting for left and progressive candidates. You know, in the United States, the Democratic Socialists of America have been awesome, not just giving people moral support, but a lot of logistical support. And I would definitely recommend that left candidates uh, reach out to them and have a bit of a chat. I was Margaret Corvid, newly elected to the City Council of Plymouth, England. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
Oh, some of the slow movement for string quartet, an early work by Anton Webern, composed about 20 years before he went atonal, performed by the Emerson Quartet. Next, socialist women legislators in New York, specifically Julia Salazar, who clinched the Democratic nomination for a state Senate seat in North Brooklyn last week. Since she has no opponent, she is all but senator-elect. She defeated an entrenched hack, Martin Dillon, who was first elected over 15 years ago after serving for nine years on the New York City Council. Dillon passed that seat along to his son, who is now serving in the state assembly. It's the family business, at least until it was disrupted last week. Julia Salazar is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She would not have won her election without them. While establishment Dems have been doing fairly well in this season at the top of the ballot, down below, things are happening, and Julia is one of them. I should disclose that I co-hosted a fundraising party for her in May. I don't think equal time customs apply here, because she's now running unopposed. Her stance in favor of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel earned the ire of hardline Zionists, and she was the target of a nasty smear campaign in the weeks before the primary, which I'm fairly certain was assisted by the Israeli government's anti-BDS operation. As frequent behind-the-news guest Joel Shalit says, Bibi Netanyahu hates BDS and is willing to pay to destroy it, especially in New York City. But they failed, as Salazar beat Delon 60-40 with a huge turnout. Here she is with more, Julia Salazar. How did you come to run for office? I am a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and I've been active in the organization for the past two years. Two summers ago, in the summer of 2016, I became um, involved just as a, as a canvasser with uh, the Debbie Medina campaign. Uh, Debbie Medina is a um, Latina tenant organizer, um, longtime activist and, and resident of the 18th district where I live. Um, uh, she's from South Williamsburg um, and she ran um, a strong campaign against Senator DeLon, the incumbent who um, had until very recently been our state senator for the last 16 years. She ran openly as a democratic socialist, um, unapologetically progressive, focusing on, on housing rights and uh, she she came pretty close. She did really well for someone who ran a truly grassroots campaign against an a entrenched incumbent. And I was pretty inspired by the campaign. Um, and early this year, a friend of mine who is really immersed in North Brooklyn politics, my friend Nick, approached me um, and said, and he's also been involved in DSA and DSA electoral politics. And he said, um, someone needs to run against Delon. And I said, yeah, someone needs to run against Delon. I agreed that someone needed to run. And uh, it was an easy sell for me, the significance of the race and and um, the viability the, of, of a potential democratic socialist running. But I had never considered running myself. I'm a community organizer, legislative advocate, have have always been on generally on the other side, uh, sometimes working with legislators to negotiate on legislation and uh, but but generally agitating and pressuring elected officials um, from the left and from the grassroots. So I had never considered running for office myself, but he was the first one to ask me. And I said no, um, actually, that was early this year. But in the process of Becoming um, increasingly committed to the race itself and, and of the importance of um, running a candidate, I, over the course of a couple of months, was further persuaded by a couple of other friends involved in DSA and eventually 
in March, I committed to run. And it, it was um, a sprint ever since then. <laughs> yes. Uh, tell us about the district. I mean, to most people, Williamsburg, if it means anything to them, means hipsters. Um, but uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I live in Bushwick. The district includes all of Bushwick, um, all of Cypress Hills, uh, almost all of Williamsburg, and about half of Greenpoint. So it's it's North Brooklyn. The demographics of the district are it's it's um, solidly working class. the The median income is about forty three thousand dollars a year. Um, a lot of families living on that. the The district is about I think it's seventy one percent black and Latino. Um, so it's, it's a pretty diverse district and, and, uh, doesn't quite fit the archetype of Williamsburg that people, you know, of of the like young white hipster in Williamsburg. Um, but we certainly, you know, have seen the district change, especially in the last, I'd say 15 years. Williamsburg is well along the route to gentrification. Uh, Bushwick is getting there. You know, Greenpoint uh, also. Uh, so I, I imagine housing was one of the principal issues of the campaign. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, housing and, and tenants' rights were the the center of this campaign, not only because our district has been disproportionately affected by um, the affordable housing crisis and lack of regulation, but also because um, our state senator had been taking more money from the real estate lobby um, and for-profit developers than any other sitting senator, um, or at least any other senator in the Democratic conference in the state Senate. So pretty big deal had really sold out residents of the district to big real estate and um, continued to really be responsive to them rather than to constituents. And it showed in, in, um, his voting record and, and and his failure to respond to advocates who for decades had been demanding that he correct course and, and finally be a, a voice for us in the state Senate. So it was, it was really the center of, of our campaign, especially with the rent laws expiring next year in 2019. It was really an, an urgent moment to elect a state Senator who would finally fight for tenants. Yeah, I would guess that a lot of people don't realize that. People outside New York don't realize that uh, New York City rent regulation is uh, entirely a matter of uh, state legislation. We have no home rule on these kinds of questions. Now, DeLon himself, uh, was he like Crowley, whom uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, displaced? Um, was he visible in the district? Was he like uh, absent? Uh, do people have any sense of him? He was generally absent. Senator DeLon's political career was, was basically attributed to Vito Lopez, um, assemblyman and and, um, and councilman from the district who was the head of the Brooklyn Democratic machine for a long time. Vito was eventually disgraced in, uh, I guess it was around 2011-2012 for sexually harassing his staffers and had to step down from his assembly seat. But he was really the the head of of a machine that funneled money funds into um, a couple of community centers, senior centers, that uh, is a a legacy that Dillon built his political career on, first in the council and then the state senate, and also uh, just participated in in facilitating these patronage relationships, old-school political machine. But that machine has really become very weak, it's not like Joe Crowley's Joe Crowley being the Queen's Democratic boss that, you know, he had he had much more 
power, the Kings County machine, or the machine in North Brooklyn specifically, was in a really weak state. Yeah, what happened to them? Urban machines around the country have lost a lot of their power. The Brooklyn machine helped create Donald and Fred and Donald Trump. What happened to them over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that over time, people were not as, as satisfied with what the Democratic machine offered them. Over time, it was no longer this institution that, uh, despite its some of its serious flaws, maybe moral flaws, and, and despite a lot of corruption, um, the the Democratic machine in New York, at, at one point at least, was actually providing direct services for people. Um, but over time, I think it, it just became increasingly um, insular, alienating to the average people in, in Brooklyn um, and in our district. I My observation anyway, the crumbling of the machine really started a long time ago, probably toward the end of, in, in Brooklyn anyway, toward the end of Vito Lopez's career. But what I observed in, in 2016, and, and especially in this election, was that when I would talk to voters, they did, often didn't know who Dolan was at all, which was remarkable given how long he'd been the representative, but also that when they did, they didn't feel that he had been there for them. He didn't feel they didn't feel that he'd shown up for them. Uh, it was less and less of people saying, "Oh, you know, Delon helped me out with this. He got funding for my senior center or my my baseball team or whatever." It was less and less of that. So I think it, it, that that I would at least attribute the downfall of the machine in Brooklyn to more and more everyday people realizing that the machine wasn't wasn't really working for them. Machines used to be really good at getting out the vote, uh, if nothing else. This time around, with Alexandria and now you, DSA was able to get out the vote. Describe what the, you know, the, the DSA contribution to this uh, political insurgency. Uh. Yeah, it's been huge. Uh, the DSA over the last couple of years, as you know, has um, exploded in membership and also articulated and, and has really sharpened a electoral strategy, both at the national level and, and um, in, at the local chapters level, but especially in New York City DSA. We have one of the biggest, if not the biggest chapters of DSA in, in the country. And so we have uh, just thousands of members. Um, and those thousands of members are pretty militant when it comes to an electoral campaign. We had some practice with two prior city council campaigns um, in the last couple of years. And then with Alexandria's campaign, DSA's ability to turn out volunteers, not only to get out the vote, but just run a really strong canvassing operation and in persuasion and having meaningful conversations with voters and a lot of visibility in the district is really critical and I'm, I'm not sure what the numbers were for increasing turnout in Queens and the Bronx and Alexandria's district, but I know it was significant. In my district, it was just absolutely unprecedented and, and unbelievable. It's one thing that I'm really proud of and reflecting on on this past election. We increased turnout um, compared to 2014. Uh, we increased turnout in the district for the Democratic primary by over 250 percent which is just wild. 
<laughs> that really is. Now, let's talk a bit about the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, some of my more militant friends uh, look askance at people like you running as a Democrat. Uh, Democratic Party, uh, both nationally and uh, in New York, you know, can be a terrible, terrible thing, uh, full of hacks and, uh, um, you know, very friendly with Wall Street and real estate interests. And, you know, we, we all certainly know the rap against the Democratic Party, and I subscribe to it. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you guys would have gotten nowhere had you not run as Democrats, I assume, and I assume you've thought about this. Uh, so what about that relationship with the Democratic Party? Do you feel like it's going to uh, chew you up and spit you out, or are you able to work within it and you have ambitions to change it? Like, yeah, what about that party? Yeah, I think that especially because of how we ran this campaign and my my background and being motivated to run by the DSA and running as a Democratic Socialist, I think that I will definitely be able to maintain my my independence as a legislator, despite being a registered Democrat um, and, a, and a in the party. Um, but I definitely share this criticism of the Democratic Party. Um, I'm highly critical of the Democratic Party. I think that the decision to run as a Democrat um, and to certainly to to um, caucus with Democrats in the legislature is a strategic one. That you know, unfortunately, we have this this um, two party system that that completely dominates engagement in electoral politics, at least in in New York and certainly uh, in North Brooklyn. So for me, it was a strategic decision to affiliate with the with the party, and I think that's actually the decision that a lot of people with ideology similar or nearly identical to mine have. That that it's just a strategic decision. There are some who think that it should be a primary goal of ours to transform the Democratic Party and reform it. I'm less hopeful for that. I, I think it would be great to change the Democratic Party to make it more more like a party that you would see in, in another country, for example, like where, where people are directly engaged in the party and, and membership in the party is actually meaningful and it and it means and it's empowering for members of the party um, versus the institution that is the the Democratic Party in the U.S. It's you know super corporate, and you know it would be great to to reform the Democratic Party, but I don't see it as a long term goal, and certainly not as a primary goal. I'm speaking with Julia Salazar, who just won election to the New York State Senate, representing North Brooklyn, with the backing of DSA. And you ran openly as a socialist. What was the reaction? Was that a positive? Anybody react negatively, um, neutrally? What was it like to run as a socialist in um, a heavily working class district? From voters, um, from everyone I ever spoke to, from all of the feedback from our canvassers, and apparently from from the outcome of the election, uh, getting you know nearly fifty nine percent of the vote, we found that it was generally neutral a neutral reaction often a positive reaction uh, from the, you know, especially from the younger, more progressive population in the district. But even even among a range of demographics in the district, people didn't respond negatively um, like one might expect. Running as democratic socialist still carries a, a stigma, you know, um, at least according to to the media, like a lot of press are, were, were always interested in asking me this question of like, isn't it a turnoff? What do voters say when you say running as democratic socialist? And the reality is that they just didn't blink most of the time. Um, I think that part of that is because Bernie Sanders sort of normalized 
the term democratic socialism and people are becoming more familiar with it and, and recognize it as saying, you know, housing is a human right, healthcare is a human right, running on policies that will actually empower the working class. This is what it really means um, in, in this moment. Um, in this society to run as a democratic socialist. And so I think people recognize that. Generally, I think that, um, you know, when I would knock on people's doors, they it's not as though I would like lead with it or emphasize it, not because I'm, you know, certainly I never minimized it. It was on my literature. It was on my website, like was always keen to talk to people about democratic socialism if they wanted to. But, but um, what was most urgent and what remains most urgent transitioning to actually being a legislator is to is, is what policies I'll be fighting for, how we run, right? So grassroots campaign, no corporate money, et cetera. Um, people were just, the press was much more interested in me being a democratic socialist than uh, voters were. It's housing, healthcare, stagnant wages. I mean, that really um, has extremely broad appeal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, you also got a lot of um, flack. Uh, you were attacked brutally by uh, especially in the last few weeks of the campaign. Part of the reason for that was you uh, ran openly in support of BDS, uh, sanctions against Israel, which virtually certain excited the official um, Israeli government's uh, anti-BDS operation. But also the real estate industry was looking for dirt on you too. I don't want to address the claim specifically. What I want to know is how do you react to that kind of attack? And I'm sure there's more coming. I'm sure they haven't spoken there last. So how do you deal with these kind of relentless, deeply personal attacks? Yeah. Um, if I had run even a couple years ago, on the one hand, I don't think I actually would have been subjected to such um, such intense opposition and relentless, you know, like smears and attacks because the the camp a state senate campaign just normally does not get even like a small fraction of this much media attention right and that's where the attacks were were aired um and coming from but at the, on the one hand i don't think that I, it, I would have experienced it as much but on the other hand if i had running say a couple of years ago pre-trump and before seeing uh, really exponential growth in our movement then i think i wouldn't have had um, the support that I really needed to, to stick it through. But I'm really fortunate to have a really strong support network um, in the face of, you know, personal attacks and this relentless effort to try to get me to not not explicitly, but essentially trying to get me to drop out of the race. Having a, a really strong support network was incredibly valuable to me. Uh, and also having the the support of the DSA and um, all of our our coalition partners, um, people who have been organizing in the district for decades, who recognize this for for what it was that these were like politically motivated smears, and were able to give me the support I needed to to keep going and ultimately and ultimately win. Talking to everyone who a bunch of people who had canvassed for you that uh, the voters had either not heard of these scandals or didn't care if they had. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like focusing on the issues really uh, did the trick. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely what, what I found. Voters are really smart. And especially when you're doing the groundwork to increase awareness about the election even happening and increase civic efficacy, people are able to fully evaluate their options and recognize the difference between 
um, a grassroots candidate who is accountable to the people versus um, an incumbent who has repeatedly sold us out to lobbyists and corporations. Now, do you feel like you can have any colleagues or comrades in, in the state Senate to, to work with, or are you going to be fighting the lonely fight? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's another thing that's really exciting about the outcome of this election is that this is just an extraordinary year in New York state politics. And even though the, um, the up ballot challengers um, and the governors and lieutenant governors race didn't didn't win their elections, um, despite running really inspiring and and critically important campaigns. Six of the uh, challengers to IDC members, um, for anyone you know outside of New York, part of the challenge in the state Senate over the last several years was that several um, nine of the Democratic state senators had entered into a power sharing agreement with the Republicans in order to create a de facto Republican majority instead of the as-elected Democratic majority, um, the, that that coalition of senators who were Democrats caucusing with Republicans was called the Independent Democratic Conference or the, the IDC. And just parenthetically, the governor liked it that way because he didn't want any progressive legislation coming through the Senate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Governor Cuomo essentially facilitated it, and uh, and you know main, maintained that so that he wouldn't he wouldn't actually have to sign progressive legislation and have control over the actual impact of progressive legislation through you know signing executive orders and and stuff. So uh, yeah, exactly. It was in the service of, of Governor Cuomo. And it was really harmful for New York State uh, when we could have been passing a lot of really critically important uh, transformative legislation. The state Senate was virtually gridlocked. So one thing that people really organized heavily around over the last year or a couple of years was the, the IDC. So challenging these Democrats saying you were elected as Democrats and as progressives and you instead caucused with the Republicans. You betrayed your constituents. We're going to challenge you. And six of those IDC members lost their election on the same day that I won my election. Um, six very progressive challengers, um, mostly very young challengers, early 30s, uh, won their elections against IDC incumbents. And so I'm really excited to be working with them um, to an- just to answer the question of, of um, am I going to be totally alone um, or virtually, you know, not not be able to have a much of an impact as um, a Democratic Socialist in the state Senate. I'm really hopeful about working with those incoming freshman legislators and also with senior legislators in the state Senate who have, despite the terrible power dynamic created by the IDC, um, for a long time have remained committed to the policies that I support as a democratic socialist, even if they don't, even if they uh, don't openly identify as a democratic socialist, they're they're essentially uh, fellow travelers. I would say, um, at, at very least, at very least in in voting record and um, in the policies they support. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful that we will actually be able to pass the the legislation that that we need. That we're finally going to be able to pass the New York Health Act, so that we'll see single payer in New York State. You know, I think that we're finally going to be able to pass um, the Liberty Act, the New York State Dream Act, um, a a whole suite of legislation that will be 
really important for protecting our undocumented neighbors and um, fighting for, for immigrants' rights. There's a lot of work to do immediately upon, upon getting to Albany in, in January, and I think we can do it. And finally, what advice would you give to people contemplating uh, such a run elsewhere? Ooh, if I could, you know, if I could do things differently, I would have certainly considered running earlier so that I would just be more prepared. It didn't make a difference in the outcome, right, because, because um, we won by such a big margin. But I would say to anyone, make sure that you have some, when I say institutional support, I don't mean from the party, uh, because if, you know, if you're, if you're running against an incumbent, you will very rarely have the support of the party, but rather the support of an organization like DSA, uh, was just absolutely huge in this election. Um, having the support of, in my case, uh, make the road action, um, near communities for change, elected officials, a lot of people got on board after after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory, actually. But but regardless, having the support of community groups is is really important. It's not just important strategically in order to win, but also it's what makes this worthwhile. That if anyone is, and I would urge any progressive to consider running. I consider myself ultimately um, reflecting on this campaign, somebody who I'm not in any way conventional politician, especially in the New York State Senate, which is 78% men, it's mostly white men. Um, so even just identity wise, I don't fit that. But also, you know, I don't have a law degree or, uh, you know, didn't study public policy in a formal way. Um, I definitely have the experience of a legislative advocate um, and like a record that I'm proud of. But but regardless, um, it's not your typical resume for a politician. So and and, you know, of course, I was attacked for that in some ways. Um, but I still not only survived, but really triumphed ultimately. So I would encourage anyone to not be dissuaded if, if that's the case for them, that they're not a conventional politician. It can be a huge advantage. Um, and we need more people running who uh, weren't just, you know, a staffer for a long time or whatever, didn't have the conventional political experience to run, but would just, would just say that um, for anyone who is considering running, it's critical to have the, the community's support before committing to running. That was Julia Salazar, who is certain to become the youngest ever member of the New York State Senate, representing North Brooklyn. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Well, let's go out with this, some more early Webern. This room is Movement for Piano, performed by Gianluca Cascioli. Till next week, bye. <laughs>